2020s is not going to be an era where tech solves your little getting your package faster problems. The 2020s mm-hmm. is going to be a decade where technology solves real big problems, real big problems, mm-hmm. food security, energy independence, energy sustainability, um, mm-hmm. uh, transportation. Labor shortages, inflation, mm-hmm. supply chain disruptions. We're talking about technology solving big time problems. Tech is graduating. Mm-hmm. It was in junior high, high school. Now it's in college PhD programs. Okay. We went from solving how to get your package faster to how do we make sure you have enough food to eat? Mm-hmm. Small problem, big problem. Small problems create a trillion dollar empires. Solutions to small problems create a trillion dollar empires. What are solutions to big problems gonna create? What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, how are you doing today? Oh, well, as our audience can tell, I grew about um, 17 feet since last week. Um, it was, it's, it's, that, it's that middle age, that, that quarter life growth spurt that a lot of us go through. No, Aaron Davis actually came over this past week into San Diego and adjusted my camera to make it look better. Did a couple cool projects. So that's why I'm, I'm looking. I guess they say I look better from this angle. I don't know. That's what they said. I didn't go to San Diego just to make him look better. We, uh, we had a few other projects we had to get together for. Had to be in person. And it was good times all around. Uh, if you're interested in seeing some of that stuff, head on over to InvestorPlace.com. But I'm looking forward to getting into our podcast as, us- as per usual. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, electric vehicles, cryptocurrencies, the metaverse, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to hit like and subscribe as to get hypergrowth investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. We have a ton of things to cover. Let's dive right in. We're going to start today off with uh, some interesting future tech. Uh, we're starting off with the Boston Dynamics dog. Uh, there was some creep uh, for those of you who haven't seen it before. Boston Dynamics is a company that has building these robotics, whether it's a dog or human, that do all these crazy cool things to emulate either a dog or a human or any other kind of functions. Uh, but there was some creepy footage that circulated last week of a robot dog firing an automatic gun. I'm sure this was a fuel for plenty of nightmares, but uh, you shared with me an alternative take on this news that is not being talked about nearly as much despite the fact that it has much broader implications for the common person. Uh, care to elaborate on what you shared with me earlier? Uh, yeah, sure. So that video is, is circulating around social media. It's getting a lot of hype and buzz because it's pretty freaky to see a robotic dog with a <laughs> semi-automatic rifle on top of its back and then just kind of unleashing rounds at targets. Um, if anything screams Will Smith, iRobot, dystopian future, uh, it's that. 
But the fact of the matter is um, the robot couldn't handle the coil really. And so actually when it was shooting at those targets, it was completely missing. Uh, that's the story they don't tell you behind that video. Um, so that the okay. technology there isn't, isn't terribly impressive. But I think it is important for our hyper growth investing discussions because it does illustrate that robotics technology has graduated to a point where these robots of various types – can successfully do various tasks. And while shooting in a semi-automatic rifle is one thing that a robot is still not very good at, things that robots are very good at include uh, packaging and sorting goods at fulfillment centers, um, cooking and you know flipping burgers at, at restaurants, um, being a hostess at, at restaurants as well, um, checking people into hotels, um, uh, creating pizza. There are now uh, robotic uh, vending machines out there where they can kind of create pizza on the spot. Paestro is the company there. So there's a lot of tasks. There are a lot of tasks out there that robots are actually very good at these days and which companies are using to develop new technologies or to develop new ways of doing old things to do those things more efficiently. I think the most exciting application of this for me, Aaron, is warehouse robotics that I think mm-hmm. there, there's a lot of um, repeatable tasks that are done in warehouses that can be automated. Because when you have to think about it, remember, what's easy for a human is not necessarily easy for a robot. And what's easy for a robot is not necessarily easy for a human. What makes things something what makes something easy for a robot is if that thing or that series of tasks can be modeled by predictable and repeatable data. So mm-hmm. everything in life can be modeled by data. That's kind of like the, the, the class of mathematics called partial differential equations where you can model everything by data essentially. Um, but some things are easier to model with data than other things. The things that are easier to model with data are the things that robots are better at, but they're not necessarily the things that humans are, are better at. So I think that when you look at the warehouse operations, movement center operations uh, industry, you're looking at a lot of things, sorting packages, um, you know, making mm-hmm. big bundles, package wrapping them, labeling them, putting them on, uh, on onto trucks and sending them to outbound centers. Those tasks are highly repeatable and can be modeled very easily by data. And therefore, it's an arena where robotics can have a huge impact today and indeed already is having a huge impact. So probably the, the headline partnership here that I'm most excited about and it actually involves an investable opportunity for folks. So get out your pen and paper. Um, <laughs> Walmart last summer, mm-hmm. uh, I believe it was July 21, actually, so about a year ago, partnered with this company called Symbotic. Um, and Symbotic mm-hmm. is a public, public company now, uh, ticker is S-Y-M. And Symbotic creates these end-to-end automated fulfillment center operations infrastructure system. So what they do is these packages come to the um, fulfillment center. Symbotic has these giant robot arms that take apart the uh, bundles of packages. But what's the name for them? Why am I forgetting the name? Anyways, you know how these packages arrive and they're on those, those crates and they're like bundle wrapped and all that stuff. Anyways, these robot arms deconstruct that, take apart the the items, and then put them into onto the backs of these Simbots. And what these Simbots are are these little robots that have they're kind of like uh, an electric vehicle meets a go kart. 
uh, meets a forklift. And they, okay. they put them on the backs of these things, these Simbots, which then drive around the fulfillment center and go and store mm-hmm. these goods in the fulfillment center. And then when okay. the goods are ready to be retrieved and sent to a, a store, a Walmart, then mm-hmm. these Simbots go and retrieve those goods. They go to an outbound uh, pair of giant robotic arms, which then take those goods mm-hmm. and then put them into the inventory that is needed for a certain uh store they put that together in a bundle package wrap it label it and then put it on the truck and then the truck goes to that local store that is symbotics technology they own that entire ecosystem that entire end-to-end system Mm -hmm. right there walmart is using them a year ago walmart said okay we're going to use you i believe the deal was for 14 distribution centers we're going to test your technology in 14 of our dcs across america to see if Mm -hmm. it does work Reportedly, since then, Walmart has achieved record high thoroughput uh, for those fulfillment centers that are using the symbiotic technology. So just a few Mm -hmm. months back, Walmart said, "Okay, screw it. 14. No, we want to have symbiotic technology in all 42 of our distribution centers. Mm -hmm. And I think it's supposed to be completed by 2027, 2028. So basically, by the back half of the decade, every single regional DC of Walmart in the country of America will be completely Mm -hmm. automated by symbiotic technology. So that is an arena where I think that uh, robotics, robotic technology is ready to have a major impact and which is an opportunity we as investors can actually make money from, can profit off of. And so I think Symbotic's a name worth watching. There are a lot of other warehouse robotics names out there that I think are very interesting. That's that's a space that I'm very intrigued by today, especially since I think the investment thesis from a company's like Walmart's perspective. So Walmart, they just cut their guidance, right? What's mm-hmm. interesting about that is Walmart actually boosted their sales guidance, but cut their profit guidance because they're mm-hmm. feeling the sting of higher costs. They're having supply chain headaches, right? So in a world where inflation is a problem, where labor inflation is a problem, where costs are a problem, I'm going to do everything as a retailer, as a retail operator, to cut costs. Yep. Robotics automation allow me to do that. They allow me to take what what is costing me 10, 15, 20 salaries a year plus bonuses and all that stuff, and I can do it with one robotic technology system. So it is a huge cost saver in a at a time when these companies are looking for huge cost savers. So I think the investment value proposition for warehouse robotics, but robotics in general is, is very compelling. And as I said, it's not just warehouse robotics, robotics in general. Private company by the name of Miso Robotics, they make the robot that flips burgers, Flippy. They've signed <laughs> yep. a deluge of contracts here in 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I followed the company for a while because I, I know somebody who was uh, a founding member of the company. Um, and for a while, it was, it was a pretty slow roll with Flippy. Uh, I think they signed on Cali Burger and they basically had one restaurant chain signed for, for like two or three years. I'm, I'm, I'm probably wrong on that, but that's what I remember. And then it seems over the past eight to 12 months, they've signed on a half dozen or more. So their commercial ramp has significantly accelerated in the wake of labor shortages, in the wake of labor inflation, in the wake of supply chain disruption. So the investment value proposition for robotics technology is very compelling right now. 
from an investment perspective, the way I like to play it is warehouse robotics because that's where I actually have publicly investable opportunities. Symbotic is one one name there, SYM. Um, but just broadly, yeah. I'm very excited about that space. So yeah, that, that's what that's where my mind goes when I see that robotic dog shooting an AR-15 or whatever the heck it was shooting. <laughs> that's a re- lot of things that go through your head when you see a single dog shooting uh, a gun. Yeah. But uh, the real question, I think, is that so – uh, when we were in San, when I was in San Diego with you, we did have a night where we had the burgers, and uh, we had uh, your, our friend Jack flipping the burgers. Would you replace Jack with a flippy? Not at not at home. I don't. Jack's not, I'm not, <laughs> Jack for for people that that are unaware. Jack is is on our team. He's he's one of our our quants. Um, and we were we were grilling and we were flipping burgers. Um, that's at my home and I'm not paying Jack to flip burgers. I'm paying Jack to create quantitative models. Uh, so, but no, I mean the, the, the value prop there of the robotics is mm-hmm. yeah, cost saving. Uh, so where there mm-hmm. is a okay. area where I can save money with a robot and that robot can do the job just as effectively as the, as human labor, if not more effectively, mm-hmm. then I, I will do that. I mean, you have to just zoom out and look at the big picture here. Robots don't need salaries. Robots don't yeah. need pensions. They don't need benefits. They don't need health care. They don't need any insurance. Well, I guess they need maybe robotics insurance. Um, mm-hmm. So they, they don't need any of those things. Um, they don't need a sleep. Mm-hmm. Right. They don't need a sleep okay. ever. So they can be constant uptime, constant productivity. Um, and they're less air prone um, at, at, you know, mm-hmm. a, a good robot is less air prone than a human. So we're, we are spiraling towards this world where a lot of the labor force will be automated out by robotics because companies serve bottom lines. Right. If I'm the CEO mm-hmm. Corporation. I serve my shareholders. I serve my profits. I don't really serve my employees. That that's not how our capitalistic society works. And therefore, my job is to boost profits. And one way to boost profits is to increase revenue without increasing costs, or even while decreasing costs. That's what a robot will do. It'll increase revenue by having more uptime, mm-hmm. more thoroughput, being able to get more stuff done, more stuff accomplished than a human can. Human works eight to nine to five. Robot works six to six. 6 a.m. to 6 a.m. Uh, nonstop. So mm-hmm. more uptime, more revenue, lower cost because you're getting rid of salaries and it can do more work uh, per per robot than, than per human. So your unit revenues go mm-hmm. up, unit costs go down, your profits go up. That is a profit-boosting initiative. Um, so I don't see why the majority of companies won't fully embrace automation, robotics, all that stuff uh, over the next five to 10 years. And it is a major threat to to the current labor market. And I, I don't know how that plays well, out. You got to get in discussion of politics there. Yeah. It's not something that we, we really cover in the show, but it's a very interesting chasm that we are going to jump um, inevitably and eventually. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it'll be a very interesting day when we have to make some very big decisions with respect to how we treat the, mm-hmm. you know, I, I estimate somewhere between 10 to 15% of the labor force will just be, will be automated mm-hmm. out. Um, and so that, that is something I, mean, I always come to that. Go ahead. I always come to that, that, uh, the, the Tim Burton, Willy Wonka, where the grandpa gets, he's a, to- he's a, he caps the toothpaste and he gets replaced by a robot. But then at the end of the movie he's the guy that's servicing the robot to that's replacing the caps on the toothpaste mm-hmm. so i don't know if there's there's growth there but i mean that's kind of where my head goes when that's a really interesting thing to bring up because something that that people kind of 
misinterpret about the automation revolution is that they think it's all about robots. So it's about software. It's actually mostly about software. Mm -hmm. so for example, we just got access to this really cool um, model, AI model called Dolly. And what Dolly is, you guys can look it up, D-A-L-L-E. Dolly is this AI mm -hmm. system yep. that has this repository of images it can access. You give it a prompt yep. or a query. Yep an astronaut eating an ice cream in space in a hyper-realistic style, mm -hmm. and it will produce a unique yep. image for you based on that query. That's never you, been created before. Yeah, it's never been created before using its, its, its repository. Yeah. So it basically says you give it its query, it goes mm -hmm. through its repository of images and, and text, and it somehow puts together, okay, this is an astronaut, here's an ice cream, now there, this is what right. hyper, this is what outer space looks like, look at hyper-realistic style, that's what those look like, and it pieces it all together and then produces an original image that's never been created before just for mm. you, for that query. And it'll create you know, a half dozen in a matter of seconds based on one query. So we are at that point now, I and mean, we're talking the automation of digital media content creation of, 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 of creative mm -hmm. art creation of digital art creation. We're already there, you know, software, it's yeah. not great. You know, we've used Dolly quite mm -hmm. a bit. It's not great, but it's pretty dang good. And it's good enough for us to see the promise of automation being a very widespread thing in the global economy. So it's just as much about software as it is hardware. And I do think we are spiraling towards a, a world where, again, 10 to 50 percent of the labor force, if not more, will be permanently displaced. And I think that when you look big picture, that's why we aren't so concerned about the inflation that we're seeing today. Um, the inflation we're seeing uh -huh. today is, is a near term temporary economic phenomenon driven by COVID related supply chain disruptions and, you know, an, an imbalance of, of economic demand or rather an excessive economic demand as a result of stimulus checks and a bunch of quantitative easing over the past two years. This, this is a temporary phenomenon. Um, eventually it will, mm -hmm. it will recede, uh, but will not recede is the secular deflationary force of technology, which is only going to grow more and more deflationary. If indeed 10 to 15% of the labor market is at risk of being completely automated out within the next five to 10 years, then you're talking about 10 to 15% mm -hmm. of economic demand coming off the table essentially over the next five to 10 years. Uh, that's a world where inflation is not a problem and deflation is actually the, the major oh. problem. So I think if you do take the big picture yeah. uh, outlook here, inflation really is, is not something we need to worry about beyond the scope of, of 12 months. Um, and when you look out five to 10 mm -hmm. years, the thing you do need to worry about is actually deflation and how we solve that. So um, that kind of ties mm -hmm. it back to, to the near term investment thesis and what we're seeing out there in the markets today. Hmm. Well, while inflation may be cooling off, we're experiencing quite the heat wave right now. Um, you know, we are, we're seeing headlines from all over the country and the world are calling out expectations for record high temperatures in the coming months. Uh, Boston even broke a daily record of high temperature last Sunday and other cities in the Northeast are expected to follow suit. You know, we've touched on renewable energy and energy storage tech as a solution to some of these problems before. But with the latest heat surge, this fe it feels like there's more pressure than ever. Um, can you explain your thoughts on increasing frequency of extreme weather and how these new technologies can combat this impact in our lives? Yeah. So yeah, the heat wave has been in, intense, right? I mean, we're a bunch of my plants out here needing more water than I've ever given them in my entire life. Um, that's, uh, the heat wave has been, <laughs> been intense. Um, I know out there in Baltimore, 
what are you what are you guys dealing with out there in Baltimore? What's the temp right now? Uh, I mean, when I left before I left to come see you, it was about a hundred. So, yeah, that's, that's, it's, that's it's up there. That's no fun. Yeah, my wife's from Phoenix, and um, yeah, we're not going out there this summer. I can tell you that much. Um, but besides that, <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the heat wave is intense. Um, the grid is strained. We need a new. We need to rethink the wheel on reinvent the wheel on how we produce energy, how we store energy, how we distribute energy. Um, and that's becoming mm-hmm. very clear. This is not the, the last heat wave we're going to experience. Um, temperatures mm-hmm. are going to be more extreme in either direction. That's, that's just what's happening. So we have to develop technologies and new solutions to adjust to that. And that's totally fine because that's mm-hmm. what human history is about. We come to an obstacle. It sucks. Yep. Causes some pain. We develop a solution. We fix it, and we have a solution for for ten, fifteen, twenty, sometimes hundreds of years. Uh, and then we come into another mm-hmm. obstacle, and then we do it all over again. That the history of humankind is innovation, trumping problems, innovation, trumping problems, innovation, trumping problems. So that's what we have right now. We got a problem with with excessive temperatures in either direction. Um, we need to come up with mm-hmm. an innovative solution to solve that. What is an innovative solution? Well, it's a combination of things. One, it's if there's a lot of heat out there, and that means solar panels should be really productive right now, right? I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, all the homes in this neighborhood have solar panels everywhere right now. Uh, they're generating mm-hmm. excessive amounts of energy, and they're selling it back to the grid, um, what they're not using. So yeah. um, I think solar panels is, is a huge step forward for um, advancing um, kind of energy independence, creating a more secure, sustainable, reliable energy grid. I believe energy storage systems are a big part of that. We need to start seeing energy storage, uh, battery energy storage solutions in every home, uh, on premise at every build office, commercial building, uh, behind every utility company. We need to start seeing these energy storage backup things. I think hydrogen is going to be a very big thing. I think wind is going to continue to, it's not really a huge part of the equation, but it's an important part of the equation. And I think it's going to continue to grow. So I just think what all what this heat wave does, what these rolling blackouts do, uh, in some, they just emphasize the need for us to generate different types of electricity. Um, I'm not saying mm-hmm. that natural gas is going to be completely phased out. I think eventually it will, but okay. Let's let's let's. I, I I'm I'm a former basketball player, so let's think of terms in terms of uh, an analogy to basketball. If I have no, one I- LeBron James on my team. And he is, you know, averaging mm-hmm. 40 points per game and, and carrying everything. Eventually, he's going to break down and he's, he's going to get injured mm-hmm. and my team's going to suck. So at that point in time, would I not mm-hmm. like to have, you know, uh, uh, a Steph Curry and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, more players on my roster to <laughs> step in when LeBron gets hurt? Yeah. That's yeah. what energy yeah. is about. Right now, we are so reliant mm-hmm. on a single energy source that it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's LeBron James. And it's, it's been very effective and very good, but it's wearing and tearing. And you're seeing that in the rolling blackouts. The heat wave is emphasizing LeBron is on, you know, his, his legs are given out. His knees are bad now. <laughs> we, need, we need more players. We need more. Yeah. We need to okay. diversify. Diversify our energy mm-hmm. sources. Let's get some solar in the mix. And we've been doing that. Let's get some wind in the mix. We've been doing that. Let's get some hydrogen in the mix. We haven't been doing that. That's going to be the new player that comes into the fold. That's going to be a major player in the next five to 10 years. Let's get some energy storage systems in the mix. We're just starting to see that come into the fold. So now we're creating this really well-diversified energy pie. And that is Mm -hmm. the energy pie that allows us to withstand these heat waves and not have rolling blackouts and not succumb to Mm – 
what are more extreme temperatures in either direction. So that's where I see energy going and why I think the reinvention of energy is just starting. Um, and over the next 10 years, we're going to see this massive diversification to all sorts of wonderful energy sources. And that diversification is going to allow us to trump this obstacle, so to speak. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, moving on to another interesting tech solution that aims to solve an emerging global crisis, uh, the global food shortage. You know, COVID-19, the Russia-Ukraine war, and a myriad of factors are sustaining food production and distribution across the world. Uh, one of the responses has been the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and even our funding projects like All Things Bugs, which develops insect-derived technologies for applications in food. Um, while this series obviously makes for an interesting headline, I know you believe vertical farming is which we've talked about before is the more interesting solution to our global food crisis. Um, can you break down why you believe this is the more promising solution over uh, the uh, all things bug solution? Uh, vertical farming is very interesting because what it allows us to do is take a plot of land where you could only grow on the floor, the ground floor of that plot of land. Mm-hmm. And now you can take that and you can build one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten layers on top of that. So you've just tenfolded your productivity Mm -hmm. of that piece of land on earth. Mm -hmm. Um, It is the analogy I like to think of it as it's the home to the skyscraper, right? When land started becoming scarce and we wanted to be you know build cities around water we wanted to build cities on water we wanted to build cities close to to uh valuable resources um we couldn't build out anymore we built up and we built these Mm -hmm. thousand foot skyscrapers to the heavens in in all major cities across the world um that's what vertical farming is you know now that land farmable land is becoming scarcer uh, as opposed to building out, we're going to start mm-hmm. building up. It, it's the skyscraper equivalent of farming. Uh, and so I'm really excited about that because mm-hmm. you can dramatically improve the food output of the world by building these essentially these skyscrapers of, of farming. Right now, the technology is very nascent. It's very early. The vertical farms that are in existence are only growing mm-hmm. basically leafy greens, uh, some vegetables. There's no meat production going on. Uh, there's no wheat production going on. So it's, it's very basic stuff right now. But you got to start somewhere. And this is a good starting block. And we're taking steps toward mm-hmm. a world where we can create these essentially, I think we're going to create sky, skyscraper cities of farms. So you're going to have one mm-hmm. giant skyscraper for leafy greens, one giant skyscraper for vegetables, one giant skyscraper for um, for cows and all sorts of meats, chickens, whatever it may be. One giant skyscraper for wheat. Mm-hmm. You're, going to these, you're going to have these skyscraper cities of, of farms. And that's a, mm-hmm. uh, a world that produces a lot more food than the one we have mm-hmm. today. So that's why long-term, big picture, I'm really excited about vertical farming. The reason it's happening now, a couple reasons. One, food security is an issue. Russia invading mm-hmm. Ukraine. Ukraine wheat came offline. Russia wheat came offline. That's a lot of the world's wheat. All of a sudden, we're feeling food mm-hmm. um, shortages across the world. Food prices, as all of us know, grocery stores have been soaring. So you got a need there. There's an urgency about the problem. And then two, uh, there have been plunging costs as it relates to when you talk about these these skyscraper farms, something that's really a big part of them, a necessary and critical component of them are LED lights, right? You need perfect Mm -hmm. lighting because the whole idea of it is each layer of this farm replicates Mm -hmm. what it's like to be outdoors in ideal Mm -hmm. growing conditions, 
So that means you need the perfect light, the perfect temperature, the perfect amount of moisture. The biggest thing in that is the light. You need really advanced, okay. high-quality LED lights that can replicate the sun. Those are expensive, but LED light costs have followed a very impressive cost decline curve over the past 10 years. And so now these LED lights are costing less and less and less, and they're at a point where we can start making vertical farms at semi-economical levels. And as those costs continue to go mm-hmm. down, the unit economics of vertical farms are going to continue to improve. And because you have to understand mm-hmm. that not only are the costs coming down, but if the costs come down of LED lights, I can get more LED lights, just means I can improve my output of that vertical farm so my unit revenues go up. So this is a situation where unit mm-hmm. revenues rise as unit costs fall, meaning the unit economics get very much more attractive uh, in the coming years. Mm-hmm. So we're really excited about vertical farming. We think it's really early. We're not expecting this to mm-hmm. be a big thing by 2023, 2024, 2025. But we do think vertical farms, they already are a thing. But they're mm-hmm. going to become more of a thing by 2025. And by 2030, we think upwards of 10% of the world's food supply could be grown in vertical farms. And that number is going to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So I think it kind of is uh, – uh, there is no alternative here. I think that is the only viable route forward. So going back to the your take on alternative energy, you like the idea of diversification. You have solar, you have wind, you have hydrogen. Is there an argument on the other side for diversifying the food shortage with something else like the Bill Melinda Gates project? Or is like you just said, is vertical farming the only path that you see being that sustainable? No, we are we are absolutely at a point where. Um, Resource allocation, resource depletion, rather, is a big problem on planet Earth, regardless of Mm -hmm. what resource we're talking about. If it's energy, if it's food, if it's farmable land, Mm -hmm. resource depletion Mm -hmm. is a big thing. So in the face of resource depletion, the answer is always diversification. You always have to diversify what resources you're pulling from. You're pulling from vertical mm-hmm. farms, good. You're pulling from uh, things like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, what they're doing, good. You're pulling from regular farms, mm-hmm. good. Greenhouses, that's a different type of indoor farming. Let's pull from that too, right? Let's pull a little mm-hmm. bit from everything, just like the energy pie. Yes, resource yeah. depletion requires diversification to truly solve. And that's why I think that um, the future of farming, the future of food is going to have a little bit of all of this stuff. From an investment okay. perspective, I like to always look at it from an investment perspective. Sure. I want yeah, to see the thing that, that. that if, if, if we talk about this pie, I want to find the sectors mm-hmm. that are going to grow the most, right? Their, their mm-hmm. piece of the pie is going to expand the most. And when I look mm-hmm. at the energy sector, I think hydrogen mm-hmm. is the one that grows the most. Energy storage, I think, grows second. When I look at Mm -hmm. the food sector, I think vertical farming is the one that grows the most. So that's why I spend my time talking about vertical farming in the food sector. But no, that that is not to belittle any of the other efforts that are going on here. I think they're all going to end up proving necessary to solve the food security issues, food shortage problems across the world today. But I think the one that's the most investable because it's going to grow its share of the pie the most and the fastest is vertical farming. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, talking about uh, excessive uses of our resources, uh, something interesting hit, hit the news the other. You know what, uh, Aaron, they, Aaron, Kylie Aaron, Jenner. Aaron, let me let me let me cut yeah. you off there for a second. I'm sorry. I wanted to. Sure. Nope, I, just, I just I just thought this. I had a conversation with with um with some folks. I think it was two weeks ago. When it's mm-hmm. very necessary to what we just talked about. 
We are talking okay. about technologies solving resource depletion problems. Okay. We're talking about tech solving big problems now. If you think about mm -hmm. the evolution of digital technologies over the past 20 years, they've been mm -hmm. solving small problems. Amazon figured out okay. how to get us our packages faster. Cool. Mm -hmm. Netflix figured out how cool. to allow us to watch movies from our home without having to go to the movie theater and pay, you know, 15 bucks a head. Cool. Thanks, Netflix. Mm -hmm. Facebook meta figured out how to connect the world online. So we didn't have to, you know, we could stay connected with people as opposed to having to write them letters or going flying across the country to see them. Mm -hmm. Thanks Netflix or thanks Facebook. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. Um, when yeah. you look at into DoorDash figured out how to deliver food to us. Uh, cool. Thanks. Uh, Uber figured out how to get us rides to places. Cool. Thanks. These are, these are yep. problems to solve. Yes, but they're not big existential yeah. crisis problems yet by solving these mm -hmm. somewhat intermediate level problems, these companies still mm -hmm. built trillion dollar empires. Mm -hmm. Now we're graduating. The 2020s is not going to be an era where tech solves your little getting your package faster problems. The 2020s mm -hmm. is going to be a decade where technology solves real big problems, real big problems, mm -hmm. food security, energy independence, energy sustainability, um, mm -hmm. uh, transportation, labor shortages, inflation, mm -hmm. supply chain disruptions. We're talking about technology solving big time problems. Tech is graduate. Mm -hmm. It was in junior high, high school. Now it's in college PhD programs. Okay. We went from solving how to get your package faster to how do we make sure you have enough food to eat? Mm -hmm. Small problem, big problem. Small problems mm -hmm. created trillion dollar empires. Solutions to small problems created trillion dollar empires. What are solutions to big problems going to create? Mm -hmm. That's why we get so excited about the future. Because when we look at mm -hmm. it from a perspective of what types of problems we're solving, we are mm -hmm. solving infinitely larger problems over the next 10 to 15 years with tech than we solved over the past 10 to 15 years. Yet over the past 10 to 15 years, solving those small problems created trillion dollar empires. It reasons that by solving these much bigger problems, the companies that actually do that will be $10 trillion, $20 trillion companies, companies the size of entire economies, entire the size of the entire US economy. That is entirely possible given the precedent of what Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon have done by solving what, quite frankly, are not really that big of problems. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're really excited. We think we're in that inflection point. Tech is went from solving small problems to now it's going to start solving big problems. So while the rest mm -hmm. of the market has been freaking out about a tech meltdown, about the end of technology, <laughs> we see it as just yeah. a natural reset button before real tech mm -hmm. renaissance, before we actually get going to see what tech can do to power the world forward. It powered the world forward mm -hmm. over the last 20 years, sure, but it, it took like two baby steps. We're about to take mm -hmm. eight, nine, ten giant leaps forward. Mm -hmm. That's why we're really excited about what's what's going to come down the pipe over the next you know 10 to 15 years. But anyways, I just wanted to mention that because it seemed like very natural with what sure. we were talking about. I think it's a very yeah, no, no, high-level perspective to keep on technology investing, just on technology developments in general. Well, 
I, I'm interested to hear your take on what the next topic, the problem that it solves, because it is an interesting technology, but it is getting a little bit of flack right now. Uh, Kylie Jenner took uh, plenty of heat last week for her private 17 minute flight uh, in an VTOL uh, from Camarillo and uh, Van Nice in California. Uh, her critics emphasize the excessive and unnecessary uh, carbon footprint of the trip. And mm. I'm sure you're not overthinking Kylie Jenner's travel schedule. I know you have strong thoughts on eVTOLs or electric vehicle takeoff and landing vehicles um, and how they will transform the future of transportation. Mm -hmm. uh, how are these new uh, transportation going to change uh, what we've just talked about? And can you fill us in on the latest developments of this industry? Right. So eVTOLs um, are a very interesting technology that revolves around the idea that highways are getting crowded um mm -hmm. going from point a to point b in, in in the same city takes a while is now becoming absurdly mm -hmm. expensive with uber fares and taxi fares and lyft fares um and so why can't we come up with a better transportation method from getting, let's mm -hmm. say, from your home to the airport or from your office to your home or from, you know, at San Diego to L.A. or from San Francisco to L.A. or from New York to Boston. Let's come up with more efficient modes of transportation. Um, EVTOLs are the answer to that problem. They are these mm -hmm. helicopters, basically, that are electric mm -hmm. but absolutely silent, uh, travel much more quickly. Um, and can take off vertically, travel horizontally, mm -hmm. land vertically. Yep. So they're like the next mm -hmm. evolution of, of helicopters. And what companies are trying to do, Joby Aviation, Archer, uh, companies like that, Lilium, mm -hmm. they're creating these, they're creating the aircraft. And after they've created the aircraft, their plan is to launch essentially Uber for the skies where they're going to yeah. build these giant vertiports or these airports for these things. You, you, you're mm -hmm. in your home, you drive five minutes to your local vertiport, you park your car, mm -hmm. you hop in the eVTOL, the eVTOL takes you to the airport in two minutes, three minutes, you then deplane mm -hmm. from that and then you go on to your real plane, you go from San Diego to Baltimore, San Diego to New York. Alternatively, you drive to your local vertiport, you hop in the eVTOL and you go from San Diego to LA as opposed to having to go on a plane because it's going to be much cheaper. Um, mm -hmm. those are, that's one application. The other application is for delivery of packages mm -hmm. and cargo transit. So as opposed to taking, uh, trucks across the country, as opposed to taking a, a truck from San Diego to LA, LA to San Francisco, you put packages on this EV tall and it transports them, uh, more efficiently that way. So there are many applications of what they're building for EV tolls. And I am very excited about it because I do think the problem they're solving is pretty important. It's not food security important but it's important in terms of saving people's <laughs> yeah. time it's important in terms of saving people mm -hmm. money um and it's important in terms of uh decarbonization and pushing forward the whole electric uh transportation movement so i i think it's, it is an important problem mm -hmm. to solve the companies there are very early stage uh the most advanced is joby Joby oh, okay. plans to launch commercial operations by 2024. So that's about two years away. But I think they're so far based on the development, they are on track to do that. So I think it's going to be pretty exciting come 2023, 2024, when this these operations are about to launch. What they look like, mm -hmm. how people respond 
is this actually going to be a massive industry? I think so. Um, and I, I'm really excited to be invested in, in the space for now. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, it's interesting that you say that, you know, these uh, EV dolls, they're trying to solve the problem of, you know, traffic and congestion and uh, I, totally understanding that, you know, a car can only move on an X, Y axis. It's bound by gravity. These are not, they have the Z axis. They can, you can have multiple levels, but isn't there an argument that if everybody wants to use an EV tall and everybody's going to the EV tall port and for that five minute away, that there's going to be that traffic, same traffic and congestion and that same amount of time waiting for the next EV tall. Yeah. So that's why you got to build a lot of them. But you also have to consider that mm-hmm. um, when you're flying around, there aren't roads. It's it's sky, right? Mm-hmm. Sky is there's no yeah. constraints up there. So these things have to fly along mm-hmm. routes that make sure they don't they don't uh, run into each other. But that is um, that's why you got to build a lot of them, and that's why okay. these things have to accommodate multiple riders. So it's not just like one per person, you know, one ride per person. For most yeah. of these they're building right now are five, six, seven seats. Probably in the future, they're okay. going to want to build ones that are 10, 15, 20 seats. So now you're talking more like bus-like transportation as opposed to car-like transportation. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, well, then shifting gears into our market check-in, uh, earnings season is in full swing. And this is arguably the most critical week of this year. There have been tons of big earnings, and the first economic data is coming in. Um, first, mm-hmm. can you let us know what you're looking at with this week's earnings with some of the big tech names like Microsoft, Alphabet, Meta, Amazon, and Apple reporting? Yeah, so um, we've gotten a whiff of earnings um, so far. They've been pretty good. The thing is that the bar Mm -hmm. is so low that companies don't need to report excellent numbers to provide an upside surprise. Pretty much not Mm -hmm. awful cuts it. Um, and specifically, what you want to see is you want to see companies, regardless of what they report this quarter, say mm-hmm. that things are getting better, that Q3 okay. is going to be better, that Q4 is going to be better. We saw that with Tesla. Mm-hmm. Tesla had real big margin weakness, especially on the gross margin line in Q2. But Elon said, you know what, supply chain hell, it's improving. It, it's over. Like where things are looking a lot better. Our production is going to ramp meaningfully over the next six to 12 months. So that caused the stock mm-hmm. to rally, lifted the whole market with it because they basically said, we hit a snag in Q1, Q2, but we're coming out of it. We're crawling our way out of this hole right now. Mm-hmm. Netflix, same thing. Netflix lost 900,000 subscribers in the quarter, but they're guiding to add a million next quarter. So they mm-hmm. lost subscribers two quarters in a row. Now they're saying we're going to inflect back to positive subscriber growth in Q3. We got into a mm-hmm. hole. We're crawling our way out of it. The stock responded positively, lifted the whole market with it. Then you had Snap. That was the other side of the token. Mm-hmm. Snap said, okay. hey, we only grew revenues at 13% year over year in Q2. We're mm-hmm. going to do, you know, we're not providing a guide for Q3 because it's so awful and we're actually flat year over year so far. Okay. So they fell into a hole and they're not crawling out of it yet. You know, they went from 13% to flat. If they said we're up 15%, Mm -hmm. that'd be them crawling out. Stock would have reacted positively and the market would have been lifted as a result. Instead, stock reacted negatively. So um, it it all depends on what these companies say is going to happen. Because we all know the past three to six months have been bad. Um, So we want to know, is it going to get better? Tesla and Netflix said yes, Snap mm-hmm. said no. What are Microsoft and Google mm-hmm. going to say? 
I think Microsoft and Google will yeah. say it's going to get better. And I think that's going to lift the market. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time our listeners hear this, they'll know if I'm right or wrong. So if I'm wrong, I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, I think Amazon is not going to lift the market. I think Amazon's going to have some, some, they're going to say things are getting worse. Shopify just laid mm-hmm. off 10% of its workforce because e-commerce mm-hmm. trends is substantially slowing. And we're, we're seeing that. Now, something I do want to point out here, because I don't think, um, actually, I know we haven't talked about it yet. So e-commerce trends mm-hmm. are really getting crushed right now. Like okay. people shopped online like crazy during the pandemic. And then yeah. that's really moderated ever since. And people actually are going back to malls and, in you know, brick and mortar shopping. It's becoming a, a big mm-hmm. portion of, of people's shopping behavior. So e-commerce trends are really slowing. I think there's potential for it to reaccelerate. And that's why I'm actually looking into maybe saying, hey, let's, let's buy this dip in Shopify stock. Hey, let's let mm-hmm. if Amazon drops, let's buy that dip. Because I think something the market's mm-hmm. not thinking about right now. Mm-hmm. which is crazy. And maybe I'm overstating this, but I think it's understated mm-hmm. by the market, the risk. Okay. Monkeypox. Really? Okay. Monkeypox and the new COVID-19 strain. The new COVID-19 okay. strain is spreading like crazy. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't really know the numbers on it, but I know that it's spreading like crazy. The monkeypox mm-hmm. thing, I just got a notification. U.S. has the most cases, like 3,400. Wow. Okay. And San Diego just, just just got its first case. So it feels right. like that the monkeypox thing feels like it is where COVID was in February, early February 2020. Okay, yeah. I'm not saying a big lockdown's coming. I'm not saying a big public health crisis coming. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying mm-hmm. is two years ago, all of us remember COVID-19 and being locked down. So yeah. if monkeypox does start to circulate and it, it's right now I'm looking at the numbers, it looks like it's spreading very rapidly in the United States. If monkeypox mm-hmm. continues to spread very rapidly, it's going to cause some consumers to think twice about going out. It's going to cause mm-hmm. some people to like, if they're at home and they're kind of like, eh, should I go to the store and shop or shop online? Eh, I'm probably going to shop online. I don't want you know the monkeypox. Yeah. Eh. You know, it's not going to completely change consumer behavior, cause lockdowns, public health mm-hmm. crisis like COVID-19 early 2020. But I think there is a potential, a very real potential for it to change consumer behavior at the margin. So this big mm-hmm. online spending slowdown we're seeing could reaccelerate. The big digital advertising yeah. slowdown we're seeing could reaccelerate. Mm-hmm. I think that monkeypox has the potential to cause some, like I said, on the margin consumer behavior changes, which could reaccelerate the e-commerce trend. So that's something I'm monitoring very closely. I think the market mm-hmm. is not paying attention to it, but I think it's mm-hmm. worth paying attention to. I've seen and heard enough people in my circle kind of freak out a little bit about it that it's causing mm-hmm. me to say, hey, maybe consumer behavior is going to change if just 10% mm-hmm. um, to you know redirect the trends of, of some of the things happening in the marketplace right now. Not to mention, I mean, COVID-19 was this thing where it's like you have trouble breathing – um, like obviously you're, a lot of people worried about, by, about dying from it, but the yeah, actual, yeah. like your, your bodily reactions to it, it wasn't mm-hmm. like a, like a zombie, like disease. This wasn't resident evil. Right. Yeah. yeah. Monkeypox is kind of like that. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. monkeypox is like, you get these giant, I mean, it, it looks Storm, yeah. nasty. 
Yeah, yeah. People care. I mean, the, the, the aesthetics of a disease matter. Yeah. I think people yeah. are very concerned about getting monkeypox, even if they don't think they'll die from it, which, I, you know, mm-hmm. I think the, the fatality rates on it are very, 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 very low, especially um, in first world countries. But mm-hmm. just the aesthetics of it, like nobody wants to get that. It looks super yeah. painful and annoying and the spots take mm-hmm. a while to, to heal and clear. So nobody wants that. Mm-hmm. So I do think there is something to the monkeypox thing that we should be paying attention to right now. Again, no reason to freak out. I don't think it's going to change the the economy or the market, but I do think it could redirect some trends. And I think one of the trends it could redirect is a favorable mm-hmm. shift back towards e-commerce. So I think the e-commerce games really beaten mm-hmm. up right now could be worth taking a look at. Hmm. Well, I'm sure you're going to stay on top of that one. Uh, second uh, with our market check-in is that we've got a Fed meeting uh, and updating its target rate on Wednesday. Uh, mm. What are you, your expectations here? And are you going to be looking for anything particular uh, with its supporting commentary? By the time this comes out, the Fed will have made its decision. Yep. So you guys are going to be able to judge if what I'm about to say is true or not. But I think, <laughs> I think, and guessing what the Fed's going to do yeah. is, is it's tough, man. It's tough. But I think mm-hmm. they're going to hike 75. I think they're okay. going to sound a more dovish tone than expected. Meaning, I think Powell is mm-hmm. going to be like, we see the economy slowing. We're going to still, our number mm-hmm. one goal is to fight inflation, kill inflation. But yep. if the economy yep. starts yep. to really nosedive and inflation nosedives with it, we're ready mm-hmm. to, to pivot. We're ready to provide support to the markets and not fight against them. So I think if he does Mm -hmm. all that, which I think he will do, that will provide a lift to stocks. And I believe a large part of the rally in July, it actually started in Mm -hmm. June. Um, Actually, for a lot of stocks, it started back in May. I think a lot of that rally has to do with inflation decelerating to a point Mm -hmm. where they believe the Fed is going to provide that sort of statement on Wednesday. Um, If they Mm -hmm. don't, I think there is a mass, there's massive room for a pretty big drop um, in all mm-hmm. stocks. Um, but I, okay. I do think that Powell will, will come to the, the rescue, so to speak, tomorrow. Okay. Um, so gotcha. that, that's what I'm looking for from the Fed. But again, by the time you guys listen to this, you will know exactly. <laughs> You'll know whether we were right or wrong. Whether I'm right or wrong. Um, I'm not placing any near-term, short-term bets on it. Not saying buy this today because mm-hmm. of the Fed, buy that today because of the Fed, you know, sell this yeah. tomorrow because of the Fed. I, I don't advise doing any of that stuff. But I, what I am saying is I do think that as a long-term investor, uh, it's reasonable to expect the Fed to provide a lift to your portfolios tomorrow. Hmm. Hopefully. All right. Uh, moving on to our crypto check-in. Any updates or is it the same story as we've been saying for the last few weeks, different week as we continue to consolidate around the $20,000 level? Yeah, it's, it's consolidate, consolidate, consolidate time, Aaron. Um, okay. uh, we had that yeah. breakout to 23, pushing up to 24. A lot of people thought that was going to be a, a, uh-huh. a start of a real breakout. We said, no, it's just hitting the mm-hmm. upper channel of a trend and it's going to come back down. And it is, you know, I think we broke below yeah. 21 today. So I think we're going to continue to consolidate mm-hmm. between 17 and 23, 24, that 20 plus or minus three, basically. I think we're going to stay in that range for a while. And once we do break okay. out, I think it's going to be a meaningful breakout, but we got to consolidate. And you have to remember consolidation mm-hmm. is very healthy. The longer we consolidate, mm-hmm. my theory is the longer we consolidate for, the longer the breakout mm-hmm. will be once this is done. If we consolidate for another week and then we start breaking out again, I don't think that breakout is going to be sustainable. If we consolidate mm-hmm. for three, four, five more months, 
the breakout subsequent to that mm-hmm. will be sustainable probably for two or three years. So I'm in the boat of rooting mm-hmm. for consolidation here because it's allowing us to kind of get the ammunition, load it up, and then mm-hmm. ride what yeah. should be a, a multi-year wave higher. So I'm actually rooting for consolidation. I think we continue to get consolidation. Um, and yeah, it's the same story as last week. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Uh, well, uh, that's all for our topics, but we have a ton of fan questions this week, Luke. People want to know your thoughts. So we're going to ask these questions and we're going to give them some answers. Okay. Uh, starting off with Rob Norman, uh, 3D homes take three months, but 3D printing has a very slow adoption. Do you think 3D home building can help uh, the low supply of homes? Oh, ab- absolutely. And there's also, I, I think, again, diverse resource depletion requires diversification mm-hmm. to solve. So we have LeBron James of home building, the old school way of building homes, getting Mm -hmm. a bunch of lumber, construction workers, hammer, 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 build it up, concrete, all that stuff. Boom. That's the home. But we've seen that, you know, LeBron's knees are getting weak. We can't lift that much anymore. We can't create that many homes anymore. There are labor constraints. There are supply constraints. So we need to develop new methods to help ease the supply shortage and boost home Mm -hmm. building productivity levels. We are Mm -hmm. going to do that via 3D printing. These uh, Mm pre-built home companies, I don't know if you guys have seen the like box homes kind of. I actually think you're you're the one that pointed them out to me a couple weeks ago, right? Yeah. 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 That is that is a solution that will help as well. It's going to be a variety of technologies that come to the forefront to help uh, improve the the supply situation in housing. I think 3D printing, again, what do I like to invest in when we talk about the pie? What's going to cre- uh, the pie, yeah. take the biggest share of the pie, grow the fastest, grow the most? Mm-hmm. I think 3D printing is that because we're already seeing 3D printed homes happen. Rob Norman, you said mm-hmm. yourself, three months to build. They're very fast. They're very cheap. They're very effective. And the homes they build are pretty cool looking. I kind of like the little layer by layer design. I think it's very modern and sleek. <laughs> so I think that 3D printing is going to be that biggest share gainer. I see it having a huge impact in the housing market. The company there that is the most promising is Icon, privately held, waiting for it to IPO. When it does, it's going to be worth looking at that prospectus to see, is that an opportunity we want to get in? But Icon is, is definitely the, the leader of the 3D printed home kind of renaissance. Hmm. All right. Uh, next question comes from CS Low. Uh, plug Power was down last week, but came back up this week. What is happening to Plug, and are they in your favorite watch list for hydrogen fuel play? Uh, hydrogen uh, Plug Power is, I mean, they're the 400 pound gorilla in in hydrogen. Um, <laughs> they've been in the hydrogen fuel cell game for a while. They dominated by starting with forklifts and selling hydrogen powered forklifts or hydrogen fuel cells for forklifts to Walmart, Amazon, and, and many other companies. Um, and they've mm-hmm. dominated that market because that was a air, uh, arena in which hydrogen held a lot of promise, right? Hydrogen is you want something that has constant uptime that can be recharged pretty quickly. Uh, that's mm-hmm. a forklift. Uh, and so it made a lot of sense to apply in the forklifts. They dominated that market. They got a lot of expertise in building hydrogen fuel cells and doing that. And then 2020 rolled around and all of a sudden everyone was like, the future is here. We're left 10 years into the future and plug power stock went from three bucks to I think like something like 70 and change. It went really, really, mm-hmm. really, really high. Management very smartly during that period leveraged all that hype to raise a ton of capital. Something mm-hmm. like five, six, seven billion dollars that they've just kind of plowed onto the balance sheet. 
They're now using that money to build an empire in hydrogen. They're building all mm-hmm. these green hydrogen production facilities. They're landing all these partnerships. They're striking deals across Europe and Asia. They're developing hydrogen cars in Europe. Like they basically first mover, leverage first mm-hmm. mover to ride a bunch of hype, use that hype to raise mm-hmm. a ton of capital, and now are deploying mm-hmm. that capital to create an untouchable empire in the hydrogen economy. So when hydrogen does become massive over the next 10 years, I think it's going to evolve into something massive. The company that's building the foundation for that is Plug Power. So are they one of my favorite mm-hmm. hydrogen plays? They are my favorite hydrogen play, bar none, mm-hmm. full stop, point blank period. So I think that Plug Power stock, it's going to oscillate with the market. That's totally fine. The valuation is compelling below 20 bucks. The stock, I think, can go way, 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 way higher in the long run. Um, I would, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, I, I am a buyer of that stock at these levels for sure. Okay. Uh, Agami85, uh, hi, thanks uh, for this housing outlook. Would you be willing to compare SoFi with Square, particularly in terms of their growth potential within the next five years or so? Thank you. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, they're a little bit different. Uh, they compete with the Cash App and and SoFi a little bit. Um, but Square is more a enterprise tool. They've created a point of sale software system and hardware system for merchants and restaurants and all those mm-hmm. you know, people that sell goods. SoFi has created a mm-hmm. super app for people that buy goods. So they're kind of on the yeah. opposite ends of the ecosystem. Square has tried to branch over to that to the buy side with Cash App. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, I've used both. To me, SoFi is a far superior uh, application than, than Cash App um, and much more mature application as well. Uh, in terms of growth potential over the next several, next five years, I would say SoFi has uh, a lot more growth potential. It's smaller. I think the market it's going after uh, is more fragmented than the one mm-hmm. that Square is going after. Um, I am yeah. a little bit worried with Square when it comes to, I guess they're, they're Block now, excuse me, Block. Um, all these companies there and changing their names. Uh, I think Block is going to have a lot of competition in the buy now, pay later space. You know, they made that big splashy acquisition with okay. Afterpay. I think there's a lot of potential for Afterpay yeah. to integrate into the seller ecosystems. But um, yeah. Apple got into buy now, pay later. It seems like everybody's going to buy now, pay later. So I think that that is going to be a. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm not saying Block is not going to nail it. I'm just saying that it's going to be a very competitive landscape. And I don't see anybody becoming like the dominant 400 pound gorilla there. I see them all kind of 10, 15 percent market share players. So I do like gotcha. Block in the long run. Absolutely. But Block feels like it's had its day in the sun. And now it's going to kind of become a secular mm-hmm. compounder. Whereas SoFi hasn't had its day in the sun yet. will have its day in the sun and then we'll turn into a secular compounder. Mm-hmm. So in terms of upside potential, over the next five to 10 years, I think SoFi has far more upside potential than, than Block. Okay. Uh, next question from Rusty Russ. Luke, last week you and Aaron featured my question and suggested to slowly sell oil stocks. I'm hearing that Mr. Navalier is suggesting the contrary right now, particular in DVN. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I just sold around 20% of my position in FANG. Should I be buying it back now? It looks like those are two questions, actually. Uh, but let's start off with the first one, uh, basically your take on DVN and uh, whether he should uh, continue to sell. Yeah, so I don't. I don't think I can really comment on uh, DBN and Fang because they're not really in my coverage universe, um, and they're not. I don't know the specific fundamentals of those stocks. 
So I, I, you know, I only like to talk about things that I feel very, that I feel like I should be able to be given an opinion on because I I know a lot about it. And I don't know a lot about those two names in particular, as it relates to um, Louie and I having different opinions on, on the oil sector. uh, The old saying is that two very, you know, two equally intelligent people can look at the, as the same situation and come to different conclusions. And that happens all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's true. That's here. You know, there are plenty of smart people on the uh, bullish side of the oil aisle. And there are plenty of smart people on the bearish side of of the oil aisle. Um, I I can't speak to to the, you know, Louis specific um, thoughts or outlook on the oil space. Uh, But what I can say is I'm, I'm pretty confident that, you know, well, we've been right. You know, we were saying oil topped it, you know, when we came out and kind of said short oil yep. on this podcast to our subscribers, you know, oil was mm-hmm. 120, 125 and it's collapsed mm-hmm. to 90 and now it's bouncing in the 90s. So we've been right thus far. Um, do I think we'll continue to be right? Well, I'm not pounding the table on short oil now here at 90. I was pounding on it at 125. Um, but I do yeah. think oil can continue to, to move lower. Um, a recession looks mm-hmm. like a very likely uh, it looks like we're already in one, actually. It looks like a recession yeah. is going to continue to get worse over the next few months. Um, as that happens, oil oil probably won't succeed. Um, I, I don't see a world wherein uh, demand destruction doesn't bring about oil prices or lower oil prices over the next few months. So as far as how to trade oil right now, again, I think it's going to have these balances, but I think it's going to stay range bound in the 90s, and I think it can pop down into the 80s and 70s. Uh, cities out there saying that we're going to see $65 oil by the end of the year. My technical analysis and fundamental analysis cooperates that. I think it's a very, I think if I were to put a price target and say my base case price target, I'd say $65 oil by the end of the year is, is very likely. Um, again, I personally am not making any bets on this. I'm not telling my subscribers to make any bets on this. I was very confident on the bearish oil thesis when oil was at 125 pushing, you know, all time highs, near all time highs, X 2008, uh, ahead of a recession. Thought that was absolutely silly and nonsensical. Um, so I was very mm-hmm. confident in the short oil call up there. Now that it's already dropped mm-hmm. 20, 25, 30%, a little bit less bullish on the, on the short oil, uh, uh call, but mm-hmm. still, I think there is a higher likelihood oil goes lower from here than higher. Uh, so that's kind of the, the wrap on my, my oil thesis right now. Okay. Uh, last question comes from Jacob Tang. How bullish are you on compass? Uh, since the average analyst prediction is 500% and that it just keeps going up while almost everything else is going down. Uh, I think we're talking about compass pathways, the psychedelic stock. The MPS. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Analysts love that one, right? Those price targets are high. Uh, our price target's high. Yeah, I, I think that stock has tremendous potential. I think it's really slept on. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's. I think psychedelics. Like we talked about this last week. Psychedelics will represent mm-hmm. the the status quo in mental health care over you know by 2025, 2030, and mm-hmm. Compass Pathways has the leading drug in psychedelic-inspired medicines with COM360, has many other drugs in its pipeline that are well ahead of peers, and has Mm -hmm. a very talented team and fully loaded balance sheet to keep developing more novel therapeutics in this uh, genre. So I really like this stock long-term, absolutely. Uh, Like you said, the analyst price target's very high. Our price target's very high. Uh, Can it soar? To that hundred dollar level, 
people might say I'm crazy for saying yes, but I absolutely think so. I really do think that Compass Pathways will be a hundred dollar stock within 12 to 24 months. Uh, this stock has tremendous potential. Once those Comp 360 results come out and this thing starts really moving along the pipeline, I think the stock could really fly higher, especially if risk sentiments across the market start to improve. And we do get what we think is going to be a real big up cycle in 2023, the beginning of a new bull market. Um, if that mm-hmm. does happen, that's that's a backdrop against which Compass Pathways absolutely soars. Hmm. All right. Well, great insights for our listeners are always. That kind of wraps us up. Uh, Luke, do you have any last words before we uh, close out everything for the day? Um, you know, we're, we're in the midst of probably the most important week for stocks of the year, if not of any year in the past several years. Um, we're mm-hmm. getting all the big tech earnings, Microsoft, Google, uh, Meta, Amazon, Apple, so we're getting all the big tech earnings. We're getting the Fed announcement and we're getting PC data on Friday. Stocks have rallied pretty big into this into this week. Wouldn't be surprised mm-hmm. to see stocks get back some gains this week, regardless of what the news is. So we're seeing that right now. Mm-hmm. Monday and Tuesday have been have been bloody days. Um, but the give back that we've seen on Monday and Tuesday does not change the short-term trend of stocks, which is up into the right right now. So I think what we see mm-hmm. here is we see this week – create some jitters, some volatility. We give back some of the gains we've seen since early June, but that give back hits some support and we continue on this this short-term uptrend, which eventually turns into a long-term uptrend. I, I think we are in the midst of a generational turnaround from bear market to bull market. And when we go from late cycle bear market to early cycle bull market, those are the unique periods of time in which fortunes are made in the stock market, like truly Uh fortunes are made in the stock market. We ran an analysis and we looked at, so when you think of making fortunes in the stock market, you think of stocks that rise 10X, right? A stock that rises Uh 10X makes you 10 times your money in a year is a fortune making stock. So we looked at the number of stocks that rise 10X in any given Uh year over the past 20, uh, over the past 30 years, Uh 1990 to 2020. In that analysis, on average, in your regular year, two, three, four stocks rise 10x. It's not that often. We're talking the whole market, by the way. Mm-hmm. But in 2009, more than 25 stocks rose 10x. What happened mm-hmm. in 2009? We had that generational turnaround from late cycle bear market to early cycle bull market. March 9, 2009, we hit the bottom. We did that transition, late cycle bear, early cycle bull. In that year, more than 25 stocks rose 10x. That's more than 5x the average. Pretty impressive. Fast forward to 2020, more than 25 stocks, again, rose more than 10x in 2020. Mm -hmm. What happened in 2020? March 2020, we did that transition from late cycle bear to early cycle bull. Now, it was very fast. That was like a boom, boom, as opposed to 2008, 2009, which was like a long drawdown into a long rebound. But still, bear market to bull market transitions, it again created a opportunity for investors to make 10 times their money, 25, more than 25 of those opportunities in 2020. So we've had two very large bear. Oh, and then also, sorry, back in, um, in 2002, when we had a bear market to bull market transition, 2003, we had a, what was the number? I think it was something like 12 or 13, 14, or, somewhere between 10 and 15 
stocks rise more than 10x in, in that year. So again, we've had three bear market to bull market transitions over the past 30 years. Each mm-hmm. one of them has created a plethora of 10x opportunities in the market. We've gone from mm-hmm. three or four on average, two, three, four, to 15, 20, 25. That's why we're really excited about what we're seeing today. That we think we're on this in this transition point right now. If we are, history says not only will stocks surge over the next year, two years, three years, but our opportunities to score 10x returns in the market, to score really big returns. You know, 10x is an arbitrary number. Call it five times, call it two times, call it three times, whatever you want. The opportunity to see those types of gains in the market, your odds just increase dramatically. So that's Mm -hmm. why we are really starting to get pretty bullish about what's going on. We're seeing a lot of data saying we're at a pretty critical turning point. If indeed we are, then there's some huge opportunities in the market today, especially when you look at that hyper growth tech sector. I mean, the rubber band there has been stretched to the max. We're talking (laughs) 70, 80, 90% drawdowns in a lot of those names. If you look Mm -hmm. historically at stocks like Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Microsoft, they too, they've all gone through 80, 90% drawdowns, but that's where they max out. These stocks mm-hmm. don't go down 95, 96, 97%. They tend to max out around 80 to 90% down. That's where we mm-hmm. are with a lot of the, a lot of the hyper growth tech stocks today. So that rubber band has been stretched super far and I think it's ready to bounce back. So we are really mm-hmm. excited about what we're seeing in the market today. Um, and we think that the next 12 months could bring about some really big gains for investors strategically positioned in technology, in growth, mm-hmm. in stocks that tend to do well as we transition from bear to bull market. So that's where we sit. That's our perspective. Optimistic. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Please, if you have any questions or comments for Luke, leave them in our comments section. We'd love to hear your feedback on any topics you'd like us to cover and see if we can answer any of your burning questions. Until then, please don't forget to like and subscribe, and we will see you next week. Bye, all. 